here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer, journalist and author. It is Rob Harvilla, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff has just published a book that came out at the end of 2023 available from all good bookshops and also online it's titled 60 songs that explain the 90s it's an absolute page turner of a publication and also Rob has a very good website and also does a podcast talking about these very songs that we're going to uh, chat about in this interview. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Rob, it's over to you. <laughs> I don't think my first 45 was David Bowie, unfortunately. I had the Stray Cats rock this town. Yes. I think that was a 45. And the B-side... I doubt it was Stray Cat Strat. Like, that sounds too good. Like, that's also kind of a hit song. And so it was, I, I think that's really tough. That's an awesome first 45 for you, but also everything is downhill from there, you know? And so maybe the Stray Cats was a little better because I love the Stray Cats and I love the Stray Cats when I was whatever, five years old. But like, you know, there's room to grow. Yes. You know, there's, there's, there's an arc. There's a very pleasing arc there. That was probably... If not the first, then one of my very earliest, you know, singles, 45s, was the Stray Cats. And I, I remember them quite fondly. Yes. Well, I remember being on the school bus, being very excited by all those kind of classic singles. It was around the same time, I think, yeah. there, we, there was like Squeeze and Joe Jackson, Elvis Costello. They were all there on the radio, oh, alongside lots of dreadful other singles at that period of our <laughs> lives. But, you know, they were the kind of ones yeah. that, that even as a young person, one thought there's something a bit more exciting and a bit more less novelty and less kind of gimmicky but um yeah there you have it so you were sort of five in 1980 were you 79 80 uh, yeah that's the way the timeline is gonna i'm from 1978 i was born in 1978 and so it's like the early 80s you know where my memories start right and so i the timeline's probably jumbled a little bit but i do have this memory of being like at a drive-in movie with my parents and holding like the physical cover of the stray cats thing you know i'm in missouri i'm in you know missouri at the time and like culture doesn't necessarily get to missouri first yeah so partially i'm in like partially there's like a two three five year delay happening culturally especially pre-mtv and so you know I, I i can make that timeline work if i if i futz it a little Yes, absolutely. So get, get into the age of 16, 18, where in the UK we're leaving school and you're obviously going to college or university. What happens then? Sort of this is the sort of the, the kind of, I suppose, mid-90s almost that you're starting to sort of have that kind of next moment of, of sort of leaving the, the family nest. It was, yes. I, I it went to college in 1996. Right. And so the mid 90s, I, you know, that what animates this show, you know, what made what made me gravitate toward the 90s in the first place is that I was a teenager in the 90s. Right. And this was the music I loved and grew up with and sort of comprised my identity as a teenager and arguably even now. But yeah, mid 90s, I was an alt rock kid. Right. You know, like just just listening, you know, obsessed with MTV, obsessed with Rolling Stone and Spin, you know, obsessed with alt rock radio 
And so that means, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, et cetera. You know, like I have, I always try and remember on my show that I have a very superficial and superficial and and an American view of Brit pop, right? You know, it's like, oh, Oasis, Blur, Pulp, you know, like I, I know all those groups, but I understand, you know, academically that they feel completely different to me as an Ohioan than they would have to somebody living through it in London at the time. Like there was a a real, you had to be there to get the full effect sort of thing happening there. But no, I mean, this is the music that made me and it was very, it was a very meat and potatoes sort of alt rock mindset that I had all through high school and college. You know, I got into college rock when I became college radio, when I, when I went to college, but you know, this, this is what I grew up on. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so with the nineties, obviously it's it's interesting how different it is between the USA and UK at this stage, isn't it? And it probably is the same for each decade. There is this kind of quite a a shift and change because in the, you know, I was, I was the eighties indie kid and that was shaped with, you know, the world of Thatcher, you know, she gets into power in Mm -hmm. 79. Then we have the, the Falkland war, which kind of makes people very patriotic on the right really patriotic and then she becomes almost like the second queen of the country and then we have the 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 miners strike and this massive thing against the unions then there's green and common with you know like we're going to get newt you know and and thatcherism really is ra- running rampant and you've got reaganism obviously and mtv exactly that's sort of and every, right, and, yeah. and you know greed is good and there is this kind of you know they're selling off all the utilities in the uk people are making yeah. a quick buck but you know it's it turns out to be completely a terrible deal most of the time and then sort of uh, that decade you know is shaped in this country with you know we suddenly had you know i suppose n- the new romantics and the blitz kids then we have golf mm-hmm. then we have indie pop then we have this Trevor Horn production and this huge sound of Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet, yeah. which leads to sort of Live Aid and this kind of we're going to feed the feed the world and <laughs> and and hope they know it's Christmas back at home, which is probably not <laughs> they probably couldn't give a damn about really, could they? I don't think uh, they cared. But then then for me, you know, the the 80s is shaped with the Smiths, you know, the the, the wonderful well, I was world. Gonna say the Morrissey Ma moment, and we're all very angst-ridden and depressed, which is, you know, the UK sure. loves being, you know, if you're on the left or centre, that's where our happy safe space is, really. But then they split up, you know, it's a JFK moment in 87, and then, you know, that next wave of kids come along, the 16, 18-year-olds, and there's the the ecstasy world, and then there's kind of, you know, the Happy mm-hmm. Monday, Soup Dragons, Primal Scream, all those kind of bands suddenly hit, the Detroit sound, Chicago, you know, all those raves and then seattle appears and the 4ad world of you know the pixies and thrones and all that and suddenly the shift is then going into that other world which is we all start to love again in the the 90s and then suddenly you get all these blokes with long hair you know the jack daniels singing songs about their you know problems with their stepfathers and all that kind of malarkey so that kind of comes along which obviously helps create the Britpop period of not really wanting to see you know those guys from pearl jam strutting around (laughs) pretending you you know it's a it's a weird kind of transition isn't it and again it's quite nice in the sense that it's so different between the fae kind of jarvis cocker to the world of you know these beefy blokes in their check shirts kind of, you know, (laughs) (laughs) whining about their sort of hometown, really, aren't they? So, yes, the 90s. But then the 90s is interesting because then it finishes with, you know, like the 60s starts, you know, well, it gets really good in 67, finishes at Altamont and the death of Hendrix, Morrison and 
and Joplin and Brian Jones the year before. You have Woodstock '99. That that sort of we bring... certainly we certainly <laughs> do our own Altima. You know, it's wow. You know, I I was fortunate to have not attended or witnessed you know on pay per view or whatever in real time Woodstock '99. Like it is. It's not funny, but it is remarkable the way that that's, you know, endures as a symbol of like the death of, of everything, right? You know, <laughs> it's like the ringer, like we put out a really good documentary, one of several about that period, you know, and it's the end, alternative rock in America, you know, as typified by Seattle, by Nirvana, Pearl Jam, like Nirvana, uh, 1994 is where that peaks, right? And it sort of dissipates from there. Green Day comes along, the offspring, like we have a pop punk moment that for some people never stops, but like that's where it was really huge or started being really huge. And then by the end of the decade in America, you've got new metal, right? You know, it's the Limp Biscuits, you know, the corns of the world have, you know, Lincoln Park is coming. Like that's what sort of takes over the rock energy. And that is a super dour, super macho you know, in some instances, and Woodstock 99 certainly qualifies, it's like incredibly ugly, you know, and, and terrible, you know, for society, you know, and that's how the decade ends. <laughs> yes. So, so that's with enough the, of that. So kind of, kind of, as it sort of, you know, slightly marries into your your book that you, you've done as well, the, the kind of one of the things that comes out of that film and, and the 90, that last part of the 90s is, you know, what what are these kids on? You know, what are they all about? And there's this kind of idea <laughs> as people are trying to make yeah. sense of this kind of, uh, yeah, crowd, that these young people were, didn't have any purpose. There was nothing, they were having it too good. And what happens when there's no struggle? You, you know, you get this kind of horrendous kind of, I don't know, like Apocalypse Now, isn't it? It's an exhausting film because you think, God, it's gone bad. And then you think, God, mm. sat, that's Friday, then Saturday. And it's like, now things are going to get really worse. And you're thinking, yeah, yeah. you know, and, you, and you're almost starting to hyperventilate going, I can't believe what's going to happen. And you think, oh, my God. And then the Chili Peppers decide to do Fire mm. by Jimi Hendrix. And it's it's like, oh, my God. Not, a, I, not, not an inspired choice of cover. In that yes. So, so, so your book... The book. So when did this, I know you explained this a little bit in your introduction, but when did your feelings of the 90s start to sort of come, you know, up again? Because obviously, you know, I, I loved the 80s, embraced all the indie pop, then things happen in life, you go, you know, you, you sort of, you let go of it a bit, you sometimes feel a bit embarrassed, and then decades later, <laughs> one starts to embrace it again. And there's sure. bits you, you quite like, there's bands that you miss the first time, that you pick up the second time. You know, the bands that you were very familiar with, you're often not so excited to listen to them again. <laughs> but there is kind of, there was an yeah. intrigue in one's decade, you know, and I didn't, you know, and I shouldn't confess this on air, but, you know, goth rock, you know, was just like an embarrassment, you know, and and now I listen to it. And, three, and there's been three books on goth rock, you know, since last sure. year, you know, there's John Robbs, uh, Kathy Unsworth. And the guy from The Cure, you know, it's suddenly everyone loves goth. And I'm right, thinking, right. you know, and it, it's kind of interesting. We, we've really revisited the 80s quite a lot. And obviously the 90s is now getting scratched over as well. So when did you start sort of, when did your 90s reappear? You know, I when we wanted to do the podcast, and this is 2020, this is the summer of 2020. I've always thought it was relevant that this is mid-COVID lockdown, like very serious you know, we're sort of cloistered and my wife is pregnant and we're not really going out. And it's just like a terrible, 
you know, physical, spiritual, medical, emotional environment, you know, and I'm cloistered here in my house. And it's like, why don't I revisit the songs of my youth? Right. And I, I like to interrogate the idea, as you said, of the 90s as like a, a frictionless or like, you know, less conflict driven time comparatively. Right. Compared to right now, it feels, you know, like utopia. <laughs> Maybe, but that depends on who you were and what you believed in, you know, and, and what was happening for you then. That's a very sort of cloistered, overbroad way of looking at it. But that's the way that I looked at it, too. And like, I enjoy interrogating, you know, the truth of that or, you know, the lie of that, of what the 90s really were like. But, I, you know, we want to do a podcast. We want to do a podcast about songs. We need some sort of organizing structure, maybe a decade what about the 90s, you know, and, and it's and it's slowly over the course of the lifespan of the show that I realize that why I love the 90s so much and why the 90s is the perfect framework for this is because I was a teenager then I was in high school I was in college. I know this music I love this music I'm emotionally bonded to this music in a different way than any other music I'll ever hear ever in my life because it's just the music when you, you loved when you were a teenager you know that's that's you. So much of that is always going to be you, even if you go back and listen to it later in life and sort of cringe at some of it. The cringing is part of the process as well. And so the, the show grew organically from there and the show is scripted, right? It's a monologue. I write it out. I suddenly have half a million words of raw material. Why don't we try and do a book? We can't just bind up these scripts because that book is too big. Like, how do I reorganize, you know, 100, 120 songs you know, in a book form in a way that'll be enjoyable for people who know the show well, but also for people who don't know the show at all. And I, the, the book was a really fun challenge. I've always wanted to write a book. I'm thrilled that I finally got to do it. And I just wanted to get these songs, in many cases, songs that like, I think anybody knows or anybody at least has heard millions of times, like get them bouncing off each other in different, you know, in, in hopefully new and, and interesting ways. You know, can I get from Celine Dion to whole you know, in one paragraph, you know, just that kind of thing. Just just finding ways to talk about like sellouts, right? You think of sellouts, you think of Green Day, right? You know, you think of signing to a major label or not, but you think also of Ice Cube and like Coolio and Dr. Dre suddenly becoming like suburban, you know, MTV stars, you know, on the cover of Rolling Stone, you know, rap music is suddenly huge, but like it's huge with a lot of white suburban kids, with no experience in Compton or with anything really, you know, that Dr. Dre, that Snoop Dogg is rapping about, you know, and that sort of dissonance, the way that Ice Cube, you know, I always think the way he talked about it, you know, like white kids are eavesdropping on my music. You know, I'm making it for black people, white people are, are eavesdropping. Like that tension and that concern that someone like Coolio had about selling out, you know, suddenly being on MTV, I, that's interesting to me as well. So just just trying to find new ways to talk about these songs, these artists, these videos, you know, there's a nostalgic, you know, pulse to all of this, obviously, but I do hope to sort of interrogate a lot of these ideas, you know, that we have about the decade and about what were the biggest songs and what were grouped together and how. Yes, absolutely. And it was interesting, you mentioned, you know, the songs when you're 16, because I know, Lemmy and David Bowie were born the same year and strangely died sure. within died within a month of each other. But they both said, you know, when they were asked that question, you know, your, you know, your favorite, your most important artist, it was always Little Richard, they both said it. And, yeah. and yeah. I remember yeah. Lemmy saying, you know, that's the music when you're 16, 
is going to be right there in your DNA. It's going to be Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, Elvis yeah, yeah, Presley, yeah. Little Richard, you know, and whoever and whatever comes along next, it's still not, you're not 16. And that that age is sort of a golden moment, isn't it, where it all is kind of happening. At, but you also in the book mentioned that you you played guitar, didn't you? Acoustic guitar, <laughs> which strum, strum along. So did you have those kind of moments of thinking... In the 90s, I could be there, Woodstock 99, if only. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not. I did not directly inspire, aspire to be at Woodstock 99, but sure. I mean, you know, rock star, lame rock star fantasies are another crucial part of the teenage experience, right? I played, I got like a cheap, cheap, cheap electric guitar. Then I had an acoustic guitar in college. I had like an open mic night sort of singer-songwriter phase. I played bass in a few bands. I played bass in a ska band, you know, right there in 1997 when ska was suddenly hugely popular on MTV, you know, like the real big fish, sublime, no doubt, you know, sort of the mighty, mighty boss towns, things, you know. So I, yeah, I mean, I played in bands, you know, sort of weekend warrior type situations that never really came to anything, but it was important to me. And yeah, it's, it's, I have, you know, my guitar is still here. My bass is still here, you know, and it bums me out sometimes that I don't pick them up ever. But that is, there was a setting aside of what seemed to me anyway to be childish things, you know. Yes. But but I I loved your track listing, actually. They're all very sensitive and existential aren't they there's there's nothing there's nothing frivolous in your selection of i guess though at the time when you're on sort of strumming away to a young lady you probably needed to show that your yin yang side quite well then yeah that's right i needed i needed to showcase my sensitive side and i really don't think that i got i did not convey the, the proper amount of sensitivity. <laughs> I don't I'm know. Put, put in an early, early Morrissey is always good. You can't go wrong. There we go. I should have, I could do a sleep. I could uh, see. Yes. Piano, and that's that, that, that worked okay for me. Half a person. In, half a person. The what that would have been a great one too. I, a sleep and please, please, please let me get what I want are the ones, you know, that yes. I always gravitate toward. So with so just on the podcast and you know and I did sort of mention at the beginning I was I so the first one I listened to was your Chumbawamba one because I sort of don't know why it sort of came onto my radar and then I sort of sort of listened to it and was you know wondering you know how far this and then I was thinking my God the detail that you and Dorian have gone to is it's like there was Dorian's no so cool. yeah. no little bit of you know mouldy moss unturned you just got the whole chump you know and it was fascinating so you're you're you analyze things in incredible depth don't you and and sort of were bang on the on the money with that one and knew the most intricate okay. little things that were just fascinating so your research is is extraordinary well thanks i really appreciate that in some cases i bring you know a familiarity with the back catalog, like Smashing Pumpkins, for example, is someone I listened to so much in high school, you know, and I, there's still a lot of research and reading, you know, and a lot of gaps to fill in, you know, when I go to do them or whatever. But I start with like a base of personal experience, you know, less so with Chumbawamba, right? You know, it's like it's tub thumping was everywhere. You know, I played it on college radio, you know, a couple of the follow up songs, you know, but I, it, I I did come into that one much colder, much, with much less experience. And that is like a crazily daunting catalog, right? That's like, 
it's like seven, eight, nine, ten records before Tub Thumper, before the record, before they break, right? It's like the it's like the early to mid 80s they start, you know, and you were talking about like Thatcher and the, the minor strike and stuff. And that's the, definitely the universe that they come out of, you know, and they they're they're anarchist punks, you know, for years who very, very slowly decide to become like subversive pop stars. And like I, I remember that episode specifically as like very intimidating to me in terms of the the listening that I had to do and just wrapping my full head around both the catalog, just both the discography and just the context surrounding it. But I do think it's important, right? You know, and like Dorian, like talking to someone, Dorian Linsky and just the knowledge that he brings. And again, like this is something where if you're from the UK, if you have some sort of personal experience, it helps a whole lot. Like I'm coming to this song as a like a random one hit wonder, you know, MTV smash that came out of nowhere and left just as quickly. You know, like I, I don't have the context, the historical context that I think you want to have with Chumbawamba. So sometimes I'm bringing a lot of stuff I already know to it. Sometimes it's it's I'm going in not cold, but like I'm going in without, you know, a lot of the context, a lot of the backstory that I really want. And I've just got a lot of listening to do. So I'm, I'm, I, I thank you. I, I'm relieved if it sounds yes, <laughs> like I know what I'm talking about. Well, I think it's kind of, it's interesting because, because obviously no one would understand. Well, the, there's the Chumbawamba EMI. And then there was also Sonic Youth signed into a major, which was kind of at, at its time, at the time was just mm-hmm. seen as mm-hmm. like another Exactly. Kind of the universe was going to, were we going to go into a black hole and die? You know, because, you know, they were sort of signed into right. a major and is this possible and can they do it? And my God, they have right. done it. Do we still like them? Shall we just burn their records now? But, you know, mm-hmm. we all love Kim Deal, uh, Kim Gordon, so we can't, you know, and it's all that I kind know. of. So so it's kind of, in you know, it's just the interest of that time, how important being on an indie label and not just any indie label was important. You know, there was Rough Trade, mm-hmm. there's, there's all the other little ones like the Pink label, which, I mean, these are tiny little indie labels in the UK and Glass Records and all this sure. stuff. And, and obviously Chumbawamba were there you know, beginning with their little kind of selling cassettes of their stuff and and mm-hmm. listening to it now, it's appalling, you know, terrible music, really, you know. But... <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's, you know, and, and great explanations of what their song's about. But you think, oh, you know, because some of the music you can go back and listen to and think there's quite a lot here, you know, when you listen to bands like the Comset and Angels or the chameleons, the sound, this heat, you know, there's a lot of really mm-hmm. interesting. And Chumbawamba have got very little musical talent and these kind of bombastic, kind of overly political songs, which, you know, you, you know, it's, tor- it's torture really, isn't it? And, you know, you, you know, and then there's this kind of conflict and pe- they think they're very clever and that's why the music papers hate them. But the pe- but it's I think it's just because you're just terrible, you know, but you've got this very loyal <laughs> audience that, that are going to go to all your gigs and, and love it. And at right. that time, you know, in the UK, we had the the great you know, the, the 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 Socialist Workers' Party, the Anarchist Party. I mean, obviously they hated each other because, you know, sure. one wasn't more extreme than the other, you know. there was The left mm-hmm. always liked to kill them, you know, shoot themselves and then, you know, leave they'll the do. door open yeah. to the right to walk straight in and go, oh, thanks a lot, we'll have another four years of this then. Well, they sort right. of squabble about, you know, the type of, you know, Ecova washing powder they should be using or something major. And then it was Red Wedge, you know, and I don't think Chumbawamba were even part of Red Wedge because that was probably too middle class. You know, it was, it was these kind of yeah. things. So the fact that they managed to have this hit single, and it was interesting in that show, I know we're focusing now on, but 
the fact that when you break it down, none of it makes sense, does it? That song, Tub Thumping, is... <laughs> yeah, I it just they're sort of interesting... You know, it's not all of their music is great. You know, that was I didn't enjoy myself 100 percent of the time. <laughs> right. And and what you what you have to get used to with them, with Chumbawamba is how explicit they are, as you say, like just how there's no subtext. You know, it's just the preachiness, you know, and, and the the excessive sort of brightness of it. It's just it's a very strange tone to wrap your head around. But it was sort of fascinating over the course again, of like at least half a dozen up to 10 records, like them slowly trying to come up with like a hit song where they could be like, where they could rage against the machine from within the machine. Right. Like it's, you don't see very often, you know, a band that self identifies as anarchists who live the life, you know, who walk the walk and talk the talk, maybe excessively, like also trying to become pop stars, you know, and to make pop music that will appeal you know, to a plurality, like to everybody, you know, and, and thinking about Tub Thumping as a song, you know, it's ridiculous on one hand, like it's ridiculous, you know, like just as a drinking song and just to hear it playing in a stadium, you know, between innings at a baseball game in Cleveland, Ohio in the mid nineties or late nineties, you're like, what, what the hell is going on here? But like the dissonance is part of the appeal, like the sheer randomness of it, you know, the unlikeliness of it, you know, the way that these things don't really work together and this song doesn't really work in this space or shouldn't, but somehow it does. Like all of those contradictions, you know, and all of that dissonance, like that's what makes that song so popular, you know, whether you're conscious of that or whether it's subconscious. Yes. And it was and then just, you know, the, the other part, which was quite interesting, it reminded me, I must admit, my I, you know, during the seventies when I was growing up, my I had an older brother who was really into prog rock, and I used to sneak into his room and listen to these Excellent. records, and um, sure. became quite aware of the world of you know Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. And one thing I noticed uh, with prog rock is that the bands, when they did their number, and they're probably why they were worth so long. Each number would you know a, a snappy record would last five minutes, wouldn't it? Mostly there was like eight or nine, but they all had to have their little moment. You know, their keyboard player, the right. bass player, the you know the singer had to do his. They had to be a little bit you know. And and yeah. funny enough, with with that you know Chumbawamba, you know you pointed out in that that podcast and um, elsewhere that each member almost has to have their little moment in a song. Mm-hmm. Say no, no, I need to do this. Oh, okay, well, so we'll put it all. You know, you think this is not going to work. You know, and then it's, it's like, anarchy. Yeah, anarchy <laughs> does not work as a musical as a musical principle, or it shouldn't work, but occasionally it does. Yeah, and occasionally, you know, it it works. So anyway, yeah, no, it was it was just kind of interesting. So then, you know, with the book, you've you've got your separate chapters, and you sort of brought together different sort of bands and different artists and different songs, which is kind of interesting. So how did how did that process sort of develop? Because obviously, you've done the podcast. And you seem to really enjoy it and you get really down, deep down and interested in it. So then mm-hmm. how did it how did you all sort of editing brain come together to put the book into into a concise 300 page volume? It was daunting, right? Because I'm sitting, I'm looking at a spreadsheet, you know, and at the time I was writing the book, I had done 90 episodes, maybe. Yeah, about that. And so and I have a bunch more songs that I want to add. So again, it's a spreadsheet of 100 to 120 songs. You know, I got to get these into 10 chapters, I need 10 chapters, 10 organizing principles. 
you know, and I, I wince at this word, this phrase, one hit wonder, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to be dismissive, you know, reductive, anything like that. But I do Chumbawamba, Tub Thumping, just looking at it, immediately does seem to group together well with songs that, from my perspective, and again, like a very American, very Midwestern alt-rock perspective, feel like flukes or just sort of weird, quirky things that happened out of nowhere. So like the Macarena falls into this category that is a very different sort of musical universe but in america you know at the time that's suddenly just a song that was you know i don't know who these people are but they're suddenly ubiquitous and everybody's doing this dance and i don't understand how this happened but this is suddenly the biggest song that ever happened to anybody and like what else is in that chapter uh you know like it's like something like santana's smooth Right. Santana, Carlos Santana, obviously like this rock star, you know, this beloved figure, you know, but a classic rock figure. But suddenly in 1999, he's back with like, you know, he wins like 12 billion Grammys in one night, you know, sells 10 million copies of like this record where he's playing with the dude from Matchbox 20. And suddenly smooth is a song, you know, that we're still like making jokey memes on the Internet about like 20 years later. Like I Jumbawamba, tub thumping, just immediately slotted in, you know, in America, like achy, breaky hearts, right? Like just like country songs that suddenly come out of nowhere and blow up and are ubiquitous and start a line dancing craze. And like people get really sick of them and people start performatively hating this song. <laughs> you know, like I just just trying to find spiritual ways to put everything together. And some of the groupings in these chapters are you know, that kind of structural, cultural, musical sort of thing. Some of it is personal to me, you know, like the last chapter is big, just big feelings, you know, and it's just songs that I have a personal, very intense connection to that don't really cohere, you know, outside of that framework, you know, like Lisa Loeb and Tom Petty, you know, and Janet Jackson, you know, what unifies that chapter is me, just stuff mm -hmm. that happened to me, you know, and so it's, I, I tried to get a, a, a mixture you know, I've been a rock, rock critic for 20 years, you know, and I can do, I can try to do anyway, that sort of wonky analysis, you know, thing. And I do plenty of times, but I wanted, you know, it's not a memoir in the classic sense. It's not that I think I'm inherently a fascinating person, but I do think that, you know, from the pure nostalgia standpoint, like the way that these songs group together in your head is not based on genre, you know, or region or micro era of the 90s or anything particularly logical or cultural. It's just they're personal to you. You know, you have your memory of hearing crash into me, you know, when you were on a road trip to wherever with whoever, you know, and that's all meant so much to you and you'll never forget it. And you have that memory, you know, and it's nobody else has that memory. No one else can really understand what this song means to you, but you know it and you remember it every time you hear it. And that's a beautiful thing, too. Yes, absolutely. We do. Yes, that that sort of whole experience, because actually you mentioned the importance of Lisa Loeb in your life, don't you? Quite a bit at the end of this chapter. Yeah. And it's that was a tough one, right? Because like the, the, the story there is I was. OK, good. I, the, I was at a funeral, you know, I was in high school, you know, it was a car accident, you know, a very good friend of mine died in a car accident. I'm at this funeral, you know, surrounded by people who are crying and Lisa Loeb's Stay I Miss You is playing over the PA because that was one of her favorite songs, you know, and so it's I, every it's, 
what's weird is sometimes I hear that song now and I remember all that and sometimes I don't, right? Sometimes it feels like that association is so intense and so, you know, destabilizing, you know, that sometimes I just hear Stay as just a pop song that was very popular when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. And sometimes I have this very intense, you know, personal sort of grieving reaction still. And I, I, I try to be very careful about getting too personal and like using other people and other events, other tragedies to sort of animate, you know, my silly little book about 90s music or whatever. But yeah, that's... There are those, you know, most of your associations with hit songs of your youth are positive ones, you know, or like, you know, your road trips and your school dances and the songs that you sang into a hairbrush and wanted to be a rock star and tried to cover in your, your little garage band or whatever. But some of your associations are are, are tragic or are, are terrible and, and do change your relationship with that song forever. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I remember your your relationship with Tom Petty and his kind of classic mm-hmm. album, Good to Be King. I think that's the album, isn't it? Is it? Uh, Wildflowers is the album. Good yes. And there's there's a sort of, because this is a, a track that you, or an album, you miss the first time and then you sort of pick up later, don't you? But then yeah. Tom Petty is okay. one of those kind of artists, probably in the USA is much bigger than in the UK. I mean, we obviously have Bruce, you know, we had the Bruce Springsteen phenomena, but it's Tom, mm. you know, Tom Petty slightly slips in there, but not has the same, wow, God, Tom Petty, you know. I suppose we remember uh, rem- remember him for sort of American, is it, oh God, American Girl? You're an American. American Girl, yeah, yeah. That was like his first hit song. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then the brilliant duet with... Um, sort of Stevie Nicks, and then there's... Uh, dragging yes, my heart around. That's there, the there's that. But the game, you know, I suppose the that chapter is particularly beautiful because there's, you know, stories about your sort of, you know, relationship with your children, your wife, the pregnancy, being at the, the hospital, yeah. sort of having all those kind of feelings. There was There was almost too many feelings, really, wasn't there? Sort of wondering what was happening next. There was a, yeah, it's Tom Petty, like, I forget, was it 94? I think it was when that Tom Petty Wildflowers album came out. And when I was a teenager, you know, Tom Petty was huge in America. He sort of quintessentially American, you know, starting right with American Girl, right? But like Tom Petty in the late 80s had like an, or in the 80s, the whole 80s had this sort of MTV resurgence, right? Like he was... I remember seeing his videos, you know, for like Mary Jane's Last Dance, you know, Free Fallen. You know, he was in his late 30s. He was older, you know. He was clearly like a classic rocker even when I was a teenager. But he felt sort of timeless, right? But I that album, Wildflowers, you know, with It's Good to Be King on it, like I liked that song when I heard it on the radio. But it's not until I'm older, right? It's not until I'm in my late 30s, early 40s. It's not until I have kids, you know, and I have sort of a classic rock sort of mindset and proclivity myself where I truly get, you know, Tom Petty and I can hear his music, hear that record, hear that song, It's Good to Be King in a completely new way. You know, I sort of grew up, didn't grow up with him, you know, he was a little more grown up than me, but there's sort of a parallel there and I almost sort of catch it up to the way that he must have felt, you know, when he was making that music when I was a teenager, you know, and it, and then it just so happens that, you know, my my firstborn son was born and I was holding him as a newborn like there in the hospital and I just start singing a Tom Petty song, you know, because I'm trying to think of a lullaby and that's the first thing that pops into my head. And so now I have this lifelong 
sort of permanent Tom Petty association, you know, with, with my son, with fatherhood, you know, with immediate, you know, instant new fatherhood. And that's a very powerful bond, of course, to make with, you know, a song, even one that you've known and loved all your life. Yes, but there's also the story of your wife, you having the child, but your wife being operated on. Is this all part of that? The Tom Right, Petty? and then, yes, yes. And then my, and, and this was, you know, I, again, when we started the show, it was COVID lockdown. It was 2020. My wife was pregnant. My third kid, my daughter, was born on Halloween 2020. Right. And the show had just started. Uh, and, you know, everybody turned out right. But like it was a very difficult, you know, birth. And my wife had to be operated on, you know, immediately after giving birth to my daughter. And so I'm standing there holding my newborn daughter. And, you know, there's the 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 the, the screen or whatever. And my wife's face is right here. But that's all I can see. And she's being operated on. And it's this very you know, this combination of holding, you know, my daughter and being very concerned for my wife. And again, like I don't. I, it's sort of a blank what I was thinking or feeling or doing in that moment, but I, I there's a possibility that I am again singing Tom Petty to my daughter just because I have established this is the thing I do <laughs> when my children are born. But like this is the thing that calms me down as well, you know. And I remember, you know, just over the span of the show, it was I had done like 40, 50 episodes of the show before I did the Tom Petty episode on It's Good to be King and, and talked about all this stuff. And I did not go into this show thinking that I would be personal at all, you know, that I would talk about my children, about my family, you know, and partially because I don't know if that's interesting to anybody, partially out of just privacy concerns, you know, just not wanting to use them for like content or whatever. Like it's always been this sort of push and pull. But that was a moment, you know, of of, of vulnerability where I did sort of experiment with the idea of of being a little more personal. And that's that's not a level I go to very often. I think a little of that goes a long way. But like the reaction that I've gotten, you know, from this show, you know, the DMs, the emails that I receive, you know, and about that episode specifically, but in general, you know, it's all that kind of personal, oh, I remember what I was doing, you know, when I was listening, you know, to the Dave Matthews band or Pantera you know, or Missy Elliott or whoever it is, you know, everybody's connection to this music is hyper personal, you know, and and so the idea of the show fundamentally has always been like, I just talk, you know, a little bit about my personal connections. And that just spurs you to think about your own personal connections. You know, it's not that I'm giving my life story because my life is so fascinating. You know, it's just I'm sort of showing that this is the way everybody interacts with music. Yes, no, God, it's um, it's very kind of amazing, actually, that bit. But you're, there's another very interesting chapter and very interesting subject that that kind of comes through, you know, in the '90s as well. And you, I think, you address it in one of your chapters, because um, feminism, and obviously, two men talking about fem- feminism <laughs> might, might not go down well. But anyway, let what the hell? Um, so in the, you know, in the, <laughs> but you know, you know, I grew up and you know, kind of understood a certain amount of feminism in the '70s, but. I quite young and in the 80s you know mm-hmm. being a sort of that's left of center you know the whole you know like I said socialist workers party anarchist you know got sort of a lot of kind of people telling me yeah. this and that and ex, you know explain stuff quite well and sort of understood an awful lot what what was going on you know obviously I mentioned you know Greenham Common and then we had 
you know, I know, I mean, I probably relate everything to music a bit, but, you know, we had the, you know, the, there was the Tracy Chapman, Suzanne Vega, there was Michelle Schott, there was, you know, there was all those other bands that came along, you know, like the members of Chumbawamba, but also members of other sort of indie bands from, you know, Tracy Thorne in sort of Everything But The Girl and she was in the course, Marine Girls, there was the Raincoats, there was, you know, there was a band called Heavenly with Amelia Fletcher. So there was a lot of strong women during that period. And obviously the 80s is very much my period. But then the 90s is, a, is another whole world because obviously, you know, we mentioned uh, Woodstock 99. They had three women on the act over three days. Not, <laughs> not, not, not One over. per day. <laughs> One, One per day. Very hope, hope, parceled out the women. Yeah, They, they probably were, they got away without being, you know, murdered and raped. Poor is, Jewel. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough gig. <laughs> that was a good. And you, you know, and so it's kind of interesting this kind of decade because it's it comes over so hedonistic, doesn't it? And sort of carefree and wild. And and but then you know you've got this chapter women versus women in rock actually starting with one of our great bands with Harriet Wheeler and the Sundays actually, and then oh, nice. sort of bringing in a lot of the other bands like and you do an amazing podcast as well on the Crown as well which is Dolores as well which is which is another kind of complex one so yes so this chapter did this was this another one of those slightly tricky ones to navigate absolutely you know I just I so I'm a teenager obviously in the 90s and so I I'm sort of coming of age you know and learning about feminism you know and being inundated with women in rock you know as like it's being presented to me as a genre, you know, women's music as a genre in and of itself, you know, up to and including like the Lilith Fair, like the way the Lilith Fair was received was as this sort of weird, you know, I just all the women would get banded together, you know, and, and it's, it's, it was a beautiful thing, but it was a very stereotyped thing as well. And I just, the most harrowing moments for me in doing research is going back and like reading interviews from the 90s with, you know, female stars, you know, reading Tori Amos's press or Fiona Apple's, right? And just the the condescension and the hostility and just like the, the blatant misunderstanding and stereotyping of what they were saying, you know, and just the way that Tori and Fiona in particular, like, were open about talking about sexual assault, both in their work and in the press, and just the the how uncomfortable that was and how uncomfortable it can be to read now and it just and also factoring into this is like the the Britney Spears moment right you know like i i was thinking about this chapter at the time when you know Britney Spears has been on this this sort of public journey you know where we were in a moment a couple of years ago where we were making all these documentaries about how terrible we had been to Britney Spears you know at the time you know right there in the late 90s where we're crazily over sexualizing her you know then there's the tabloid era you know and and then the conservatorship that sort of took over her life and we we sort of realized looking back on the magazine covers and the radio interviews you know and even Ed McMahon's being creepy and we just we have so much to apologize for about the way that we talked about and presented, you know, this music at the time, you know, and I, it, it's so talking about that chapter, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because putting them all in one chapter is just doing the same thing, you know, that I'm trying to admonish or trying to like change the, the public record on, right? You know, and so I'm trying to filter all this through, you know, the ways that someone like Sinead O'Connor or Dolores O'Riordan or, or Cheryl Crow 
or Fiona or Tori or TLC, you know, had the way they had to fight against this stereotype, this box, you know, that the press was always trying to put them in. And it's Sinead O'Connor is another example, right? Like you think about, uh, you think about, you know, Britney Spears, you know, shaving her head. You think about Fiona Apple at the VMA is saying this world is bullshit. You think about Sinead O'Connor tearing up the picture of the Pope. You think about Bjork in the swan dress, you know, these moments that in real time are picked up by the media and treated as like these prurient, you know, sort of outbursts, you know, that show how volatile these women are, you know, and they're just, they're covered as these wacky, you know, little moments. But in, in time you discover, you know, you realize like, you know, the power of the political statement that Sinead made and to, you know, like Fiona was telling the truth, you know, this world is bullshit, you know, you can still enjoy it. You can still be a part of it, but that doesn't mean it's not true. You know, these moments that in real time get women branded as sort of crazy or volatile, you know, I, you know, in, in time it's, it's, they were right, you know, and time has proved them right. And now we have this impulse you know, to apologize to them in a way that can infantilize them all over again. Then you get like Britney Spears, like rebelling against the barrage of documentaries attempting to apologize to Britney Spears. And then you have to apologize for that. Like the cycle of that is very interesting to me. And yes, to try and to filter that through being like a teenage boy. Right. You know, and I'd like to think I was a good person, you know, and hopefully I was. But, you know, I just I have as a consequence of the media, but also as a consequence of being like a dumbass 14 year old, like a very cloistered view, you know, of gender roles, you know, in rock and women in rock and just category and everything and just interrogating the way that I used to feel, you know, is another big part of, of, of what I'm trying to do here. And hopefully not ever in like a scolding way, you know, I'm not trying to be pedantic. And I mean, part of that chapter is like, don't call them badasses. Like, don't say, oh, this this Sunday song is so badass. Like, just the, that's a way of, you know, that that's a very corny way of trying to praise women, you know, by putting them, you know, in the same context as like men as rage against the machine or whatever. Like, just be cool about it, Rob. You know, like, that's what I'm trying to do in that chapter to myself, but there's, there's a lot to consider there. And I just, I try and consider it all without ever getting too pedantic or feeling like, like a very special episode of a sitcom or something like that. I don't want to lecture anybody, you know, or even myself. Yes. Well, well, absolutely. And also it's interesting because the music papers, you know, in this country, we had the three weeklies like, uh, the NME sounds melody maker. And then we had those kind of other ones like Q and Vox and Select came along, which sort of yeah. put themselves yeah. very much into the world of Britpop. And there was Kerrang. But it was Ronan Stone. What was really interesting with that one is when you see the covers during that period, it's like, it's a little bit, you know, there's a tumbleweed moment. You think, my God, it's just a porn cover, isn't it? You know, it was just like naked women on the cover of a music paper. The Britney one, the first Britney one is rough. The Teletubby, it's, yeah, that's, it's not, it's not what you want. No, it's, <laughs> it, it was, you know, it's just fascinating how quickly things can change, you know, from right. what you would imagine, you know, when you hear Kurt Cobain talking, when you had the, the Morrisseys, you had, you know, like Sinead, you had the Indigo Girls, Natalie Merchant yeah, yeah. with the 10,000 Maniacs, you're thinking, you know, if you were stopped it there and thought, what happens next? You would say, oh, well, it's just going to be, 
equality. It's going to be beautiful. We're all going to be, you know, you don't see Woodstock 99 just literally around the corner, do you? And No, you do not. No. <laughs> <laughs> so so yes that's uh, that's quite an amazing one and so with, with that yeah and uh, i like the fact that you've tackled you know some of these things so sort of kind of head on because again i love the depth you know things like the harriet wheeler and the sundays yeah. you know not many people would have sort of put them you know would have gone that that much into the i suppose the uk really and, and a band who were on rough trade at the time which was Quite interesting as well. So then you're another chapter, which is fascinating, Vivid Geography or Everybody Hates a Tourist. So how did this this kind of chapter come about? Just looking at this list of songs, I there were a few things happening there. And like Everybody Hates a Tourist is a pulp line, right? <laughs> it's from Common People. And like Common People is a song, you know, when I found it, when somebody played it for me in college, I loved it so much. And Common People is a song you know, about, you know, excoriating this woman for trying to be someone that she's not and trying to pretend that she's poor, you know, and because she thinks that it's cool to pretend to be, you know, a poor college student when, you know, and and just that's that idea and just that line, everybody hates a tourist. You know, I, I started to think about my own relationship, you know, as a teenager, as a college student with rap music, you know, I'm listening to Wu-Tang Clan, I'm listening to Mob Deep, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this very gritty, you know, very place specific sort of rap music, you know, that's describing a universe that I have no familiarity with. Again, going back to, you know, Ice Cube, you know, Coolio, you know, Snoop Dogg, you know, the same thing on the West Coast, you know, going back to NWA, just this idea that it made you feel you know, that you were in, you know, Compton or whatever, but you're not, you never have been, you very well may never be, you know, and so it's, you don't, you don't understand, you can love this music, you can memorize, you know, the words, the songs themselves, but you don't know what it's like to come from this place and to really feel these feelings, you know, and then you think about, People like Bjork or Missy Elliott, you know, people who are so good at, at creating alternate universes, you know, who feel almost like space aliens or like people from the future. And just the feeling that you get listening to a Missy Elliott song or watching a Missy Elliott video. And the same with Bjork, you know, like just just the the the, the world building literally that they're able to do can make you feel like you're having an out of body experience. But again, like. You don't really know this person or where they're coming from or what they're about, you know, and it's it's there's a difference between, you know, loving a musician and being able to credibly say that you've ever walked, you know, a mile in their shoes or whatever. And just the way music creates these connections, but you have to be careful about assuming too much, you know, about about the place that they come from and about what they're saying. You know, this this was this was a, a weirder one to sort of cram all that together into one chapter. But I really, I really loved, you know, the challenge of that, of trying to find a way to talk about Bjork pulp, you know, in the Wu-Tang clan, you know, in the same breath, you know, and, and I, 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 I really enjoyed writing that chapter, even as if it was, it was kind of tough to figure out how to, how to do it. Yes. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting because obviously, 
we had a DJ in this country called John Peel, which was the go-to place for sort of all the interest sure. in new music who introduced me to just, just every sort of type of music. And he was in, that was the early 80s, so I suppose he was started yeah. to play, you know, there was Public Enemy, but there was also all the other Grandmaster mm-hmm. Flash and then a bit of African Bone Barter, then LL Cool sure. J, and then sort of T La Rock. And there was other women called the Real Roxanne, Roxanne Chante, Sweet Tea. Right, right. All these yeah. kind of, you know, and everything was quite fun. There was a digital underground. There was uh, the uh, Delish Soul. And that, that was kind of that period. I even went to this thing called Fresh 90, oh no, Fresh 80, 86 in, at Wembley Arena with all these acts for sort of two days and got my eardrums oh, sort cool. of absolutely blown. But it was interesting. <laughs> but by the time the NWA came along, I'd slightly, I don't know, I just went, oh, that's not really my gang. So I couldn't take sure. on that. I'm going to be a gangster now. A, I was probably in my mid twenties, and B, I thought, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm not. I can't pretend to be, you know, living in the right. ghetto with a newsie. You know, I'm, I'm much more right. into sort of happy, happy lyrical kind of rap. You know, and the, in, you know, uh, it was all, yeah. and and people like Salt and Pepper were there as well. So it was, yeah. it's kind of interesting how quickly. I suppose it has a big impact for a 16-year-old who decides they're going to somehow relate to a a world that has absolutely nothing to do with them and sort of take on that persona. And it's not like conscious. It's not like you listen, you know, you're a 16-year-old and you listen to The Chronic and you're like, wow, like I totally understand. Like there's always a part of you... That, that gets, you know, that feels, you know, and hopefully respects the distance between you and Dr. Dre or whoever, you know, it, it's not that it tricks you into thinking it, but it's just trying to figure out how to be conscious of that distance, you know, and respectful of it, but still loving this music and, and really having an emotional connection to it. It's not that that's wrong or faulty, you know, to, 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 to feel, so strongly about this music, but just just holding in your head simultaneously the idea that I have just I I have no idea where this person is actually coming from. And yet I have, you know, this very deep, profound, you know, emotional connection to them anyway, because I love their art so much. You know, that's just that's a very challenging you know, but very rewarding dissonance, you know, to sort of play with, you know, as a writer, as a critic and still as a listener. Yes. So, so, okay, one chapter, which is also kind of fascinating, and I think the one that I probably would say 90% of the songs I can't bear is Teenage <laughs> High <laughs> teenage, <laughs> teenage yeah. high Jinks, which is obviously, uh-huh. which is kind of interesting because <laughs> I think... <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the, these sort of songs where you, you pretend to be a person that you're not, I suppose, you know, it's kind of interesting, isn't sure. it? Like, this, this is the one. So what was what was the your, your sort of, you know, feelings behind this particular one on this one? Well, th- so that this would be a chapter that's organized more along personal lines, right? You know, it's not sociological. It's just this is the music that I loved when I was a teenager, you know, and just <clears throat> the... It's funny, I'm having trouble, like Rage Against the Machine is in there, right? You know, I believe that chapter starts with a description of me attempting to toilet paper a mailbox after a Rage Against the Machine concert. Like I'm trying to wrap toilet paper, like it's like like the blue thing and like it's falling off because the shape is, is, it just, it just didn't work. It just, an especially hapless act of failed suburban teenage rebellion is how that chapter begins. But I, it's, 
I wondered when I started this project, if I would go back to the music that I loved in the 90s and it would embarrass me, you know, and that didn't happen, you know, I and I'm relieved that it didn't, you know, I'd like to think I'm a I'm a smarter, you know, you know, broader minded, more compassionate person now, but I can go back and listen to whatever it is, Nine Inch Nails, Pavement, Smashing Pumpkins, whatever, and, and still get the same sort of visceral emotional thrill, you know, or at least a piece of it that I got when I was 14. You know, mm. I can look at it with a little more, I can look at it with, you know, like more of a critical perspective and more of like a mature emotional perspective and like think about what was really going on there and, and sort of wonder at how emotionally bonded to Trent Reznor I thought I was when I was 14, as he's describing you know, whatever the hell Trent's describing, like our experiences are not remotely the same. And I don't know how I ever convinced myself that maybe they were, mm. but I, it's, I, I do have a fondness for myself as a teenager. And I do, you know, there's a special place in my heart for the music that I loved at that time. And, you know, I hear Pearl Jam differently now <laughs> than I did when I was a kid, but there is enough of a, a through line there you know, and enough, you know, sentimentality, not too much, but not no sentimentality, right? You know, I, I don't, I understand, certainly this podcast is animated by nostalgia and animated mm. by the idea that nostalgia in and of itself is, you know, if not a bad thing, then an insufficient thing, you know, it, 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 it can blind you, you know, to the truth, to your own truth, it can blind you to, you know, how good we had it in the 90s, you know, it's just, it's a distortion field of sorts, you know, and it's, there's an allure to it, and there's especially an allure to it, you know, when things are terrible in the present, but, you know, I I, I want to try and complicate, you know, the stereotypical view that we have of the 90s in general, and that I have of my own teenage years in particular, but I I can still listen to Rage Against the Machine now, you know, and feel that same sort of, you know, awesome energy that I felt as a kid, but also think of me, you know, toilet papering a mailbox and, you know, laugh at myself a little bit. Yes. But then, you know, I mean, Radiohead, I mean, I remember John, <laughs> I remember John Peel yeah. describing a, uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer as kind of a waste of electricity. I mean, I have the same feeling with Radiohead. So how do you... Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so you know because because i suppose when you know karen carpenter sings i say goodbye to love no one seems to care if i should live or die you know she really means it ian curtis morrissey and he's smith yeah, but but yeah. but but radiohead you know i'm a creep it's like if they were your neighbors you'd happily give them the keys to feed your cat water the plants there i suppose what right. i find is Very difficult reliable is, gentlemen yeah. they are they are they, it's, they're not like members of throbbing gristle you know you wouldn't think oh my god no they're not Genesis people just move next door. Things might That's go a weird. Vibe. Yes. <laughs> so I, I suppose, and then you know, you got you know, under the bridge, you know, and all this, you know, dramatic <laughs> stuff, you know, with yes. with and November rain with that horrendous oh, video, please. and you know, yes. and it's you know, these are the songs, you know, are, are really cringy, aren't they? But do, do you still love them? I do, you know, again, yes, I can go back and I can watch the November rain video and be like, oh my God, like what, you know, you jumped in the cake, you know, but I, there's still, there's still enough of that teenage feeling, that feeling of genuine awe, you know, confusion also, but awe, you know, and just this sort of reverence of rock stars, 
you know, that is the currency of youth, you know, but I, I maintain enough of a connection to it where I can still feel, you know, some measure of that effect, you know, and, and again, like I bring a little more to it now and a little more maturity, but like, I can't, you know, front, like I don't still love these songs, you know, in particular Radiohead is funny because I, I loved Radiohead. Okay. Computer was my favorite album of all time for a solid five, 10, 15, 20 years there, you know, and, and Radiohead was one where I did go back and listen to them and I didn't quite love them as much as I loved them when I was 17, 18, whatever. And that made me very sad, you know, but I suppose that does count as growth to some degree. I'd like to think that Tom York would, would, would understand, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, you do, you do got to grow up at some point, but I, I can't pretend like I didn't love that music in yes. real time. And, and I still love it now, you know, even, even if I can, you know, chuckle at it or chuckle at me loving it a little bit. Yes. I think, you know, I, I suppose I wanted to to sort of move on with the Smiths, and I did for probably a few decades. Sure. But but when I've listened to them again, I kind of can still. I think yeah. I don't know if you have this thing when you listen to a record, and you know it's a hit, and you and even if you didn't like the band, you don't particularly like even like the song. You know, you know whether it's Suzanne Vega's Luca or you know Todd mm. Thumping or any of these kind of hey ho silver lining by. Jeff Beck, you kind of know there's some, there is a hit. And when, I don't know if you ever get these documentaries occasionally where they'll want to write this hit song. So they get the producer of the day, you know, like Guy Chambers, and they'll get this great guitars, they'll get this great studio, they'll get a great singer and they'll work on this project. And they, they end up with this song and they present it and you hear it. And after 10 seconds, you go, oh, just enough. This is terrible. You know, <laughs> do you ever, do you ever sort of wonder what it is that makes that record a special do you ever sort of think what is it that is something you know because i can understand why you know some of guns and roses songs are great i can understand <laughs> you know why you know some of you know red hot chili peppers i kind of get it but it's embarrassing because yeah. i'm you know it's just like <laughs> because because his lyrics are so ridiculous and and you know Very ridiculous yeah. you know and when he puts a little irish accent on once or twice it's just like from his last album That's He's been doing that lately, and I don't know what that's about. That's his version of maturity. He has somehow conflated, you know, old soul, you know, maturity with Irishness, which is really quite fascinating, but it's bizarre. Um, <laughs> I, you know, um, certainly I can listen, you know, to an album and be like, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, it's, 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 I, I don't. As a critic, I don't think that I'm like a hater, particularly. I really admire rock critics who just despise things. You know, it can write these beautifully, you know, vitriolic, you know, zero star reviews, you know, of an album that they just can't, they just can't stand, you know, and that's, that's a very satisfying, you know, justice has been served sort of feeling to read somebody who really can do that well, who can really hate with true eloquence and passion. And that's never, I've always been, you know, a little too, you know, like, I don't know if it's like a, a lapsed Catholic, like sort of Midwestern conflict averse sort of impulse that I have, but like, I, it's hard for me to absolutely hate something, you know? And it's, I, I, I find myself subconsciously and then just consciously like trying to find the good in it and trying to imagine the person who loves this and why, 
you know, and I, I, so I can create enough common ground between myself and this hypothetical person who loves under the bridge or even like the Macarena or even like Billy Ray Cyrus or even these things that, you know, it's, it's, it's not the greatest feeling in the world to have achy breaky heart in your head for two weeks. Right. Like that's not the most enjoyable experience I've ever had, but like I can watch that video and see like a crowd, you know, of like slightly older women, like really enjoying themselves. It's like, Oh, this is really nice for everybody. You know, like I just, I, I think I have a natural impulse to see the good, see the joy, see the value in everything, even if it's not particularly my thing. And I would probably, frankly, be a better critic and by extension, a better writing if I were able, you know, to hate a little more passionately and eloquently. But I guess I just try and honor, you know, that it's that's a real people who try to do that and who try to hate something and just trash something for the sake of it. You know, if your heart's not in it, if you don't do it well, you know, that's its own sort of indulgence, right? You know, and so it's like, if you're not good at hating things, then like, don't bother trying to like, just to look cool. Yes. Well, I, I think in a way, and with that, it doesn't, you know, there's no point. I think what's interesting is if you love something, but then you can see, I mean, I, you know, like I love David Bowie, you know, I've, but I've also realized it was, a, it's been a hard journey because though, you know, when he died, suddenly it's like, wow. But it's like, no, actually, it was, it was quite hard work at times. You know, the eighties weren't that amazing. Some of the nineties and nineties were, yeah, were, were really tough. And then there was, thing. you know, heathen, which was great. And then there was reality, which was, yeah. you know, it was easy, you know, it was, it was okay to like, but you know, some of the nineties drum and bass stuff wasn't good, but you know, it was, it was, it was kind of also fascinating to go back and listen to, or just be aware of those records and feeling so disappointed and knowing you just spent money. So you had to go and listen to them at least for two months to get your money's worth, but it was painful. Right. And, and, you know, looking back, it, it's still, it's, but you know, it comes from a place of love. If I just hated something, I can't see the point. You might as well just move on. You know, there is, right, like you right. say, there isn't, there's no point you know, it's, you know, the, the, you know, going back to Chumbawamba, it's more, it's kind of interesting when you know the work and you kind of like it, but also just kind of find it boggling because it's just like, what is this? This is just yeah. a, it's a fascinating thing. So, um, yeah. And just yeah. last, your last chapter, one of the last chapters, your myths versus mortals. This is the the one which is full of full of tragedy, really, and and sort of dying, really, isn't it? So again, this is this is another fascinating kind of group of artists that. You know, some of some have kind of been much bigger now. Some are not so big, really. So, how did you sort of bring this one together? It was. I this is another case where I hesitate to look and see, like, oh, like Kurt Cobain, you know, the notorious B.I.G., like Aaliyah, Selena, you know, Tupac, obviously. Like, what do they all have in common? You know, their tragedies. You know, their tragic deaths. You know, and I, it's it, you. I first I rebel against the idea you know, of of lumping them together just for that reason. Like that feels a little, you know, prurient to do that. But I do think that what I wanted to do with that chapter is is try to rehumanize them, you know, and 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 try to separate them from, you know, their tragic figure roles, you know, and it's like there's Selena murals all over the place, Biggie murals. You know, just the iconic, you know, Kurt Cobain, you know, outfits and magazine covers and the way that these people get canonized and sainted, you know, in a way that is ultimately also dehumanizing to them a little bit. You don't just see them as people, 
you know, you see them as 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 cultural figures, as saints, as gods, you know, but that's that's robbing them of a little bit of their humanity. And so just trying to go back and think about what it was like to listen to Nirvana in real time as like a shocked kid, you know, as as Nevermind sort of takes over the world and changes MTV, at least, you know, radically overnight. And just what it was like to listen to this music before you knew the whole story, you know, what it was like to listen to, you know, Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You is just like a massive bonkers hit song, you know, without the baggage of knowing how, you know, the Whitney Houston arc plays out. Like just, you know, Selena would be another example of somebody like Chumbawamba where like I was aware of her. I knew some songs, you know, I had an awareness of her importance, but I didn't grow up with her you know, as a central influence, you know, the way millions of people did, you know, and going into that episode and into this chapter, the part about Selena, just sort of understanding that, you know, there's not a tourism element, but I am listening to this and looking at this person from somewhat of an emotional remove. I don't have the same memory, you know, that I have, you know, with whoever, Trent Reznor or whatever. And so just trying to respect people who have that deep emotional personal connection while not pretending like I have it myself. So that chapter, you know, on the show, when I do a Biggie episode, a Tupac episode, you know, the Aaliyah episode was so tough because you have like a tragic death and then you have like R. Kelly, right? You have to figure out how to talk about her earliest work, mm. you know, and the way she was treated and the media treatment of her as well. And the way like her annulments, you know, her marriage to R. Kelly was covered at the time you know, trying to find a way to talk about all that without it coming off as like a very special episode, you know, where my tone changes and I take on this very serious and grave and somber tone of voice. Like I wanted to talk too about how joyful Aaliyah's music was and Selena's and Biggie's, you know, and Nirvana's in its way, you know, that that it, it wasn't, it's it, this isn't gloom and doom and it wasn't listened to as a, an American tragedy in real time. That is what it became ultimately. And that does certainly color the way that we hear these people now, you know, but in real time, you listen to Juicy, you know, by B Notorious B.I.G. And it was just, it was this, 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 this atom bomb of joy, right? And just the experience, you know, you listening to it and him rapping it, you know, and just talking about, you know, where he started and where he is now and just, coming to grips with his own success, his own fame, you know, and, and just what a joyful, beautiful song that is just from that emotional level, like trying to reclaim a little bit of that joy from just sort of the tragic cloud that, you know, inherently, you know, you get now with Biggie versus Tupac or whatever. And so that, that, that chapter is, is about, trying to hear these songs for the first time, you know, again, and trying to bring these people back to life, you know, in a way that, you know, honors who they were in life a little bit. Yes. No, God, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's a, all those, those stories and all those artists in that one are, you know, it's a good chapter. I loved it. There you go. That's, Thank you, man. I no, no, it's good. And I have to say, I, you know, I've loved the book and um, it's been fantastic and I've loved your podcast. So, um, I mean, Thanks, just, just going forward then, um, have you got any other projects on the, on the horizon? <laughs> it's, it's so funny that I should have an answer to this. You know, it's like the nineties, the show, the book is called 60 songs that explain the nineties. We kept adding songs 
we're up to 120 songs on the podcast. We have three songs left and we are going to end the nineties. You know, it was tempting to keep going, but I do think that we want to find some other framework, you know, some other thing, some other way to do this, to, to retain the same sort of idea of the show and the book, but, you know, apply it to whether it's a new decade, I don't know, or a new sort of overall framework, the show will be back in some fashion, you know, in a few months here, but I, I think it is time to bring the nineties to a close. You know, I think there being a finite number of songs of episodes is sort of an important part of building a canon. you know, however modestly we're trying to do that. And so I, yeah, the the specifics we got to work out because you know I just procrastinate as a matter of 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 course, but I you know the show will be back, but I do think that this is the right time, you know, to bring the '90s specifically to a close. And I have a lot of anxiety about leaving the '90s behind, but I do think <laughs> it's the right move. Well, I guess it's you know your safe place, isn't it? You know, now it's become <laughs> you know you're... it has become a very safe place. I mean, it's become the place where I've spent. The vast majority, you know, professionally of the last, it's going to be a solid four years of my life. And that's, it's very strange to say that out loud and to know that that is true. But this, you know, this is what I've been doing pretty much exclusively, you know, since the fall of 2020. Uh, but it's, it's again, like the, the reaction that I've had and it's just, you know, just DMs, emails, just, just people saying nice things and telling me their own stories. It's just, it's been the coolest reaction that I've gotten to anything I've done yes. professionally. It's been so gratifying just to talk, you know, to people like you is, is such a cool, cool thing. And I'm so appreciative of it. No, I, I absolutely love it. You know, there's a couple of, like I said, there's a few podcasts I absolutely love and, um, this has become my my new best friend. So, um, yes, it's been, <laughs> you <laughs> well, know, thank you. that's very sweet. The parasocial no. aspect of, of podcasts and you know, it well is, is, is really wild, right? Just, just the, the intimacy of it, you know, and I do it too, as a listener, it's just, it's, it's wild. The connection that that forms, you know, and how legitimate that is. Yes. Well, look, this has been fantastic. And thank you yeah, ever man. so much. If you want, I can always send you a link to this this show and you can always have it for your archives or on your no, social please, media. Let me, know when, let me know when this is up and I, I, I will I will put it up as well. Yes. But well, look, thank you ever so much. I'm going to go to bed now. But look, have a great evening. And, <laughs> Holy um, shit. What time? Is it 11? Yes. It's five hours, I think. Oh, man. I, I, I always forget that. It, yeah, go to bed. Please. Go to bed. Okay, I will. <laughs> okay, look. Thank you. And loved, yeah, thank just you. loved it. Okay, take care. Thanks All again. Right, for take this. care. See you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with Rob Harvilla. Talking about his book titled 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. This has just come out on um, hardback at the end of 2023. And um, yes, worth checking out and tracking down and buying a copy. I'll give you the link in the notes below. This has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Yes, indeed, dear listener. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.